Hello, and welcome to The Church's Radical Reform, the podcast series exploring the unprecedented reform efforts that Pope Francis has begun inside the Catholic Church. Now, one of the ideas behind the Synod was to listen to those people who have walked away from the Church and to hear what they had to say about what the future could look like. It's well known that the Catholic Church, particularly in the Western world, has lost a huge number of members over the years. In this episode, I talked to Lord Simon MacDonald, a long-serving diplomat who rose to become the highest-ranking official in the Foreign Office. Lord MacDonald grew up as a Catholic and says he remains inspired and indebted to the values that he learnt and was educated in when he grew up. But he's no longer actively involved in the church. Throughout his career, he worked closely with prime ministers and foreign ministers and ambassadors. And drawing from that experience, he has recently written a book on leadership, examining the qualities that good leaders need to demonstrate today. Given his background, and given that the Synod is all about modelling a renewed form of leadership in the church, I thought he would be a great person to talk to about the synodal reform efforts. Lord MacDonald, thank you very much for joining me on this podcast. It's a great privilege to speak to you. You are a career diplomat, formerly the most senior official in the Foreign Office, and you've written the book about leadership. Some people listening to this podcast might wonder why I've decided to interview you. Um, but given that the church's synod process is all about looking at a new model of leadership and how to lead well in the world today, um, it, it's great to be able to talk to you. So thank you. Thank you, Christopher. Um, has leading become more difficult today in yes. an age of social media and scrutiny? In one word, yes because leadership is much more scrutinized than it was ever before. Uh, it is more difficult to conceal errors large and small. Um, it is easier for a hostile uh, audience to acquire a huge audience through social media. So yes, I, I do think uh, it is more difficult. And added to the scrutiny is the, the changing rules that are applied to leaders. Uh, some of that I find just very, very difficult to process intellectually. Uh, an example, um, uh, Donald Trump has recently been arrested in the United States, 34 charges, but there is a large section of American opinion whose opinion of Donald Trump has improved as a consequence of the arrest. So this is applying a different moral framework from my childhood. Um, if uh, the authorities thought you'd broken the law 30, 40 years ago, that would have been a key fact for most people, and it just isn't anymore. <laughs> so we're, we're in this new world when it comes to, to leadership, and you've obviously observed a number of leaders up close. What do you think are the equalities that are needed for good leaders today? I think good leaders stand for something. Good leaders know why they want to be in a leadership position. Good leaders have a moral compass. 
uh, and they generally have some sort of plan. So if backed into a corner, they can tell in two or three sentences what they're trying to achieve in the job they're doing at the minute. Uh, second, I think good leaders have the ability to build teams. They know that leaders, although they are at the top, are never doing anything all by themselves. They know that the idea that they might try is a danger to good leadership. So they are people who build teams whom they trust and who work um, selflessly for them. Uh, and the third thing I put in the book is they're decent human beings. You know, the, the leaders that I most enjoyed working with were people of kindness and compassion. They thought about other people. They thought about the, the impact of, uh, of what they were doing on everyone, on those most immediately around them uh, and those further afield. Uh, and they cared about that, and they tried to help those immediately around them and help those further afield. Uh, they were generous, they were generally funny, um, uh, they were good company as well as good leaders. And you say also in the book that um, humility is the most attractive quality uh, for a leader. Um, a kind of a, almost a, a timeless thing there, and, and perhaps the church can offer something when it comes to the importance of humility. It should be able to, yes. <laughs> um, because it is the basis of Christ's teaching. Uh, but humility, I think of as uh, putting others in front of yourself, knowing that you are not the center of the universe. The church traditionally, or at least in the last 150 years or so has had a very hierarchical model of leadership and you talk about the importance of a team the church is trying to move to a less hierarchical leadership but without losing the uh, you know line of authority at the same time a global organization does need lines of authority i believe or else things can become chaotic very quickly um, I think that it is possible with new technologies to make um, fora for debates in which many people can participate. Uh, much of the online world is regulated by um, groups in which, which are very democratic, where the CEO and the person with a bright idea in a village in India get equal airtime at key conferences. So I think there are ways of using the modern world to help older institutions with newer problems. Uh, there needs to be some adjudication, some refereeing, some structure, but reaching out beyond traditional groups, uh, I think, is helpful. Yes. Um, you, you write also in the book that it's important for leaders to take decisions, uh, that some leaders uh, end up in a position but not able to actually affect reform. So you are also saying that it's important to have a, 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 someone who is clearly taking the lead and not just sitting back. Uh, and that would suggest uh, that perhaps a hierarchy is not 
necessarily something to, to be dismissed. I don't dismiss it. I, I've already said yeah, yes. a global organization needs a hierarchy. Uh, I think an organization which wants to continue to exist into the indefinite future is also helped by a hierarchy uh, because uh, a hierarchy that works well delivers the best people to its summit. So people think uh, have the best chance of uh, taking the decisions which give the organization a healthier future. So yes, I, I think um, hierarchy can help. And I think the Catholic Church right now has a man at its summit uh, who is grappling with very important issues, issues which really did not need to occur to his predecessors half a century ago, uh, but which absolutely are affecting the church's prospects in the short and long term. What issues would you say those are? What, what issues come to mind? One is the way society organises itself. Uh, we had, uh, for many, many reasons, uh, a very traditional view of what families were, um, of what sexual morality was, uh, how individuals expressed themselves, how individuals related to wider society. Uh, I suspect it was of rather more recent uh, origin than uh, my teachers implied in the 1970s. You know, it definitely was uh, there in the 19th century, but I don't know if it was really there hundreds of years earlier. You know, social control was a different thing in the Middle Ages. Um, anyway, uh, clearly now uh, different ways of living are not only acceptable, uh, but um, are demanded by many individuals, and why not? And I think the church needs to respond to that. Um, it's, you know, uh, the scriptural basis for many of the uh, prohibitions is, is pretty flimsy. So um, the church responding to different non-traditional ways of living a life, I think is important. One of the things that the Synod has thrown up is a very urgent call for greater involvement of women in decision-making. Absolutely, it should have been my very first point. That's half of society, which uh, in my childhood, in a religious setting, was assigned a very subordinate role. Uh, so um, my uh, mother and sister were uh, taught by nuns, and so that was one role. But, you know, even in the teaching context, they were kind of behind the brothers and the priests. Uh, and apart from that, they arranged flowers and looked after the parish priest. Uh, and that was it, uh, as far as the church was concerned. So the church was sort of writing out half of society, that women, but also uh, ethnic minorities, uh, LGBTQ+, uh, uh, and uh, you know, marginal groups in society were made to feel even more marginal in a church context. Yeah. You, while you were at the Foreign Office, oversaw uh, great diversity when it came to leadership 
roles, particularly when it came to, to women. How did you go about doing that? Like any decent 12-step program, you have to acknowledge you have a problem. And uh, we didn't. Um, uh, and, and in a way, it was for an intellectually respectable reason that um, the Foreign Office in stages had got rid of the formal barriers to uh, promotion for women, uh, uncomfortably recent in the past for a historian, but we did allow women to be full diplomats from 1946, and we did allow married women to stay in the diplomatic service from 1972. Uh, I became PUS in 2015, so 1972 was quite a long way in the past. Um, women had had the same opportunities as men for nearly half a century. But as we looked at the facts, uh, although women were entering the uh, diplomatic service in the same numbers as men, they were not getting to the top jobs. There are about 170 ambassadorships at different levels in the British diplomatic service, and about half of them had never been done by a woman uh, uh, in 2015. So we had a list uh, and we looked ahead. Uh, it was absolutely vital uh, to the Foreign Office that the best people get the jobs. Uh, so that was uh, the, the first principle. But making sure that the fields for all jobs, but especially top jobs, had qualified women needed some work. Uh, and because we are a service, um, appointments are done uh, internally, you could plan ahead. So with my board, I looked at the next round of jobs, looking three, four years into the future, and said, what does the field look like? I mean, after 30 years, you have a pretty good idea about who's going to be applying to be next ambassador in Beijing or Berlin or Tokyo. And where there were no women, we thought, well, who would be? No, who would you expect to be? Because these characters have been in the service 30 years, there must be somebody. And then there was a conversation um, with these women about why they weren't putting themselves forward. And usually it was because they thought that they lacked something they thought was key to doing a top job. Uh, and so with training or giving them relevant uh, work in between times, we were able to fill that gap. And so women were candidates for all these jobs uh, by the end of my time as PUS, and women were getting um, their fair share. So you, you had to take a very clear step-by-step -step approach to ensure that this happened. Um, now, in the Synod process, we've seen some people resisting any change or reform or resisting the idea of a synod altogether. And then there are others pushing for reforms quite swiftly, particularly in Germany. And I know you know Germany very well, having been posted there and served there as a diplomat. What would you say to those who are impatient for reform? Because I, in your book, you put forward some concrete reforms to the House of Lords in the UK. But you, you propose those reforms to take place in an incremental way. What would you say to those who really want to see change happen now? Would you, would you suggest that the incremental approach is the 
is the best way? I think that old institutions generally cope with incremental change better than revolutionary change. Uh, that an old institution fears it will lose too much if there is revolutionary change, and I think they are often correct. Uh, so I would urge reformers to have a plan. I would urge reformers to be flexible in the detail and the timing of that plan. I would urge them to be persistent but also patient. Um, when I was in Germany, one of the debates was around same-sex marriage. And there were a group of people who were very, very keen for this to happen immediately, immediately. I mean, they saw that the Netherlands and indeed the United Kingdom had changed. Why couldn't Germany act the same year? Uh, but politicians I admired said, this is coming. This is absolutely coming, but there needs to be more preparation in Germany. Germany is not the Netherlands or the United Kingdom. Uh, so uh, these politicians would say they, they personally supported it, but wanted to wait a little longer. Not to make this issue go away, not to hope that the agenda would move on, but to do some more active preparation. And that's what happened. It, it came, but it came three or four years after more liberal countries. Uh, and I think that's fair enough that knowing your uh, public, knowing the raw material you're working with, you can flex the detail, you can flex the timelines and still achieve the essential result. Now, I'd like to come on to your own um, background uh, growing up in a Catholic community, Catholic family uh, in the north of England, in uh, Salford, the northwest. Um, your grandfather ran a pilgrimage company. Um, and so you, you would say you grew up as a Catholic um, in, those, in the values of, of that faith. Is, is, is that fair to say? That is absolutely correct. But today I can see there are other intellectual underpinnings possible to the values I hold. But it is absolutely true that for me, it was the Catholic Church, uh, my Catholic priests, Catholic teachers, Catholic family that taught me. And when you look at it today, and um, I think you say in the book that you're perhaps not an active member of the church, but obviously formed by those values. And this synod process that's, that Francis has started is about listening to those who perhaps are not engaged in the church. Do you think it's a case of the church leaving you or you leaving the church? I don't really mind, Christopher. <laughs> um, but I, uh, the distance... Uh, grew wider in my late teens, especially going to university, especially meeting people for the first time in my life who were not Roman Catholics <laughs> and were very decent human beings. Um, and then in my 20s, there were tragedies uh, in my family and uh, you know, how the church's sort of reflection on those tragedies, I, you know, I didn't find especially helpful. And... Uh, also, in my 20s and 30s, more and more uh, information came out about uh, abuse within the Catholic Church. So I had sort of a, a theological problem and a church temporal problem. Uh, and so I stopped going to church. So 
this reform process that Francis has started, presumably you would see that as a, a very important thing, given the church is trying to work out its future and in some places trying to survive. You anticipate correctly. Uh, but it, it is intriguing because um, if you are a traditionalist, you might argue that um, Pope Francis is trying to appeal to people like me, people who've already gone. So why bother about that constituency? You know, the church could argue that focusing on the core, which is not all that content, doesn't like a lot of the liberalism, that is a, a, a more certain way of uh, helping the church survive into the future. Uh, well, I disagree with that, but I, I hear that argument. But you, you disagree with it. Why do you disagree with it? Uh, for uh, two reasons. Um, I think although the church is a very old institution, although it has coped with many changes, it's always prided itself on being an intellectually rigorous institution. You know, they take on Galileo and they take <laughs> on Darwin and whoever else because they, they believe uh, that... Uh, that this is that faith is a matter of intellect as well as spirit. So if you're closing down intellect in a way, if you're narrowing debates, um, not thinking new thoughts, then I think you're sort of um, uh, intention with that variance with uh, a key part of the church's history. But second and more important, the holy. Uh, Catholic Church is a universal church. So always has striven to reach out to as many people as possible. It, for me, it is the single distinctive, most distinctive feature uh, that most other faiths at some point have sort of closed the doors or thought more about the existing membership than those who are not members. The Catholic Church has never done that, and I don't think it would be right to start doing that now. Yeah. The Catholic Church should try to appeal universally. Yes, because if it, if it stops doing that, it stops becoming a church and becomes a sect. Yeah. How important is it for real reforms to come through in the church? Um, reforms that make people like you sit up and take notice. How important is that to you? I think it's very important, mostly for the church rather than for me personally. Uh, but uh, these are issues that are not going to go away. Issues of equality and inclusion confront many institutions. Uh, the church has to have an answer. The church can't turn it back to this debate. And the, the other question, though, um, coming on from that, one of the criticisms or one of the things that people say is it's very difficult to get a consensus in the global organisation of the Catholic Church. Uh, this is where leadership comes in because it is not possible to agree everything by consensus. At some point, you have to, as a leader, take a deep breath and 
take a decision, explaining it as clearly as you can to the people who disagree with you, but you have a different perspective from them, you have a different time frame from them. Uh, so you see it is necessary to act even if you cannot bring everyone with you. Uh, to take such a decision when you're in a minority, it's kind of punchy, uh, but to take such a decision when you've substantially made the case or you've got a majority uh, persuaded, I, I think that is legitimate and necessary. Yes, and when you've gone through a process like the Synod, that could also give that decision a greater authority. Final question. Um, and this is about the Vatican or the Holy See as a, as a political institution on the world stage with its di diplomacy. Um, interested to hear your thoughts on the impact of the Holy See diplomatically from your own background. Um, how important do you think that the Vatican is? I would say it was patchy, but I would say it was very closely related to the qualities of individual Vatican diplomats. Uh, in very few contexts these days does anybody give the representative, representative of the Pope a hearing just because he's the representative of the Pope. There are some protocol exceptions. For example, in Germany, uh, the nuncio was always the dean of the diplomatic so that meant the dean went first. Uh, the dean gave the formal reply to the chancellor at the annual diplomatic reception. But so what? Uh, where I saw really effective uh, Vatican diplomats was uh, in the field. But they were, you know, they were they were people who were responding to the political challenges in front of them. I mean, their response was clearly informed by uh, the fact they came from the Vatican, but it wasn't wholly shaped by. You know, they were flexible and imaginative, responsive, because they were good diplomats rather than because they were representatives of the church. Okay, interesting. And presumably the Vatican's uh, influence on the world stage is also dependent upon the credibility of the church and the... the, the yeah, there's a huge time lag. Inertia is one of the most important forces in politics and diplomacy. Um, the Catholic Church continues to count because it has been there for the longest time and represents, to a greater or lesser extent, a huge slice of mankind you know, in, into the billions. Uh, so no matter how weak it is, it still will get some formal attention. Uh, the Pope will continue to be the only world leader for whom the Chancellor of Germany turns up at the airport. Uh, but looking ahead, um, I think you know, trading on your old reputation gets you less and less far. Uh, unless you're confronting the prob urgent problems, um, you're going to see your role diminish, you're going to see your influence diminish. So take action, I would say, rather than embrace that diminishing fate. Okay, and I, I know I said final question earlier, but this is generally the final one. Um, are you hopeful that there, it is possible to lead in an effective way today despite the challenges? 
Yes, because the person of the Pope is a very powerful position. Um, the Catholic Church has the ultimate hierarchy. I think um, a, a man, still a man, with energy, uh, intellectual fire, can do essential things for the Catholic Church. You know, positionally, even though he's very, uh, he's very conscious of being hemmed in, still formally he is the supreme pontiff. So uh, yes, I am hopeful for that particular leader. Uh, I, I wish him physical strength in his mid-80s. Well, Simon McDonald, thank you very much for taking the time to speak and offering uh, your fascinating insights. Very, very helpful and interesting. Thank you. Thank you, Christopher. This is a podcast sponsored by the Centre for Catholic Studies at the University of Durham in partnership with The Tablet. Thank you for listening. <laughs>